Let me please or listen on as, as I read God's word from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 31, final time. This is the fifth and final sermon from these verses. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. And let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for these great, these very great promises and truths which we consider. This, Lord, it, it, it seems to us, is the very rock upon which we build. And if we should build upon anything else, we would build upon the sand. And yet we find that as we stand upon these truths, we are able to withstand any temptation. We're able to withstand any trial, any difficulty. Lord, make us stable. Make us certain. Give us assurance through these verses and now through the preaching of them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been considering these verses for some time. Uh, and as I've, I've said over and over again, I'm, I'm really not in any hurry to move on from them, though I think, uh, I think by the end of this sermon I will have said everything that I have to say about them. Although, even in that sense, as I say that, it's wonderful to see how Paul doesn't really leave the thought. He just keeps expanding upon it in the verses to come. Uh, even beyond that, beyond the verses to come, we get to the end of chapter 8 and verses or excuse me, chapters 9 through 11, we notice that Paul is still contemplating the purpose of God, the electing purpose of God. Indeed, that becomes the great theme of chapter 9. And so even though we'll leave these verses, we really won't leave the theme anytime soon. What What we find in these verses is stated in verse 28, as we know, Uh, And say to ourselves often, I hope all things, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And the reason we know this is because those uh, whom he foreknew, he also predestined and those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's why we know in other reason, uh, in other words, I mean, the reason we know that all things work together for good is because of the plan of God. And as we contemplate the plan of God, so we are assured that everything that falls under that plan, which is everything, must fall out for the good of the believer. And so that's how a believer arrives at assurance. He arrives at assurance not by looking at himself. He he might need to do that some. There is a place for self-examination. I would never suggest otherwise. But, But ultimately, the way he, as I said in the prayer, builds upon the rock and becomes certain and stable so that he can later say, along with Paul, I know that nothing can separate me from this love. I'm persuaded of it, not not even death itself, not the worst trials in all the world. He arrives at this. He's persuaded of it by considering the plan of God, or as we looked at last time, the love of God. Well, thus far, I'm only reviewing, but it did occur to me that there is still one truth yet untold about this verse and that is as i've uh, entitled the sermon the scope of god's plan what we need to see about these verses when paul says that all things work together for good to those who love god 
And, and those whom he foreknew, these he also uh, predestined and so on. We need to see that this is something that was always true, that is always true in all cases of everyone, of everyone God has ever saved. In other words, when Paul says what he says, especially in verses 29 and 30, these whom he uh, uh, foreknew, he also predestined and so on. He's making a universal statement. It's a universal statement that we tend to make individual. He's talking about me and he is. If I'm a Christian, he's talking about me. But but really, that's not the thrust of the verse or the verses. The thrust of the verses is these whom. And we ask the question, well, who are they? And the answer is everyone who has ever been saved. Everyone who ever will be saved. This is something which the apostle has been stressing throughout this epistle. That we must not, and it's something I should add, that he often stresses. That it is a mistake to think of salvation purely in personal terms. Or even to think of the plan of salvation exclusively in terms of myself. This view is far too limiting. And it does not do justice to the thought of the passage, which is not about myself. The passage is not about me. The passage is about God and his great purpose with respect to all who are saved. Now, that includes me, but I'm just a very small part of it. The plan of God, the scope of God's plan is very great. It's vast. It's wide. It spans across all of history. I I would go further. It it spans across all of eternity. And it fills all the universe. All that he has created. What we are trying to comprehend as much as we can is God's plan. It's God's will. It's what he willed for the elect. And that is a purpose. That is a will which includes many. These whom? Again, who are they? Well, This includes us, but God's purpose reaches beyond us to all who are saved. That's something that we have to keep in mind. And very soon, Paul will force us to do so, not just in chapter 9, but chapters 9 through 11. Now and through those chapters, we are looking at the great eternal purpose of God. And what Paul will say And what Paul is saying now and what I'm saying is that it is wise. Indeed, it is necessary to take as wide a view of it as we can. Think of the Jews, for instance. What was the fallacy of the Jews, both in the days of Christ and in the days of the apostles? We might even say even today. The fallacy of the Jews is this, that they tended to limit the purpose of God to themselves. I can't think of a better summary of the error of the Jews. In fact, Uh, So great was this error that they were unwilling to accept their Messiah when he came to them. A far, far too limiting view of God's greater purpose, which he had stated to Adam and then to Abraham. He made it clear that not only a savior would come, but that uh, the scope of that salvation would include sons throughout the whole of the world. And yet we could go beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. We find that. Paul has much to say to them in Romans 9 and Romans 11. Because 
Well, salvation was taken from the Jews. They rejected the Savior. And so God rejected them. The, the natural branch was broken off. The unnatural branch was grafted in. That, that is the Gentiles. But what does Paul say to the Gentiles? He says, be careful. He says, take heed lest you fall. He says, uh, beware of pride. Beware of presumption. Don't begin, in other words, we'll see this. Don't begin to think of salvation exclusively in terms of yourselves excluding the Jews. No, God isn't finished with the Jews, Paul will say. The plan of God is greater than yourself. The Jews face this. The Gentiles later faced it. We face it. We are limited in the modern day by our perspective on time. Sometimes we think that there is a straight line from the New Testament to ourselves. But that isn't true. We think too exclusively in terms of our own age and our own time. This is, by the way, the value of reading history. It gives you this broader perspective of what God has done in all the long history that has passed from the days of the apostles and the days of Christ to the present day. But if you go back in Romans, you'll see that Paul is making this very point to the Roman Christians. He's saying you've got to have, well, again, I don't know how else to put it. You've got to have a wider view of the vast expanse of God's plan than your own narrow uh, window in time and place. And what you will see when you do that, when you consider the vast expanse of redemptive history, is that you will see that the stress of the epistle, namely that a man is made right with God by faith alone, he's justified by faith alone, not by works, what you'll discover is that is something that was always true. That isn't something that Jesus came and suddenly revealed as though it was never known before. No, if you go back to Abraham, as far back as him, you'll see that Abraham himself received the promise by faith. He was justified by faith. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. So in Romans chapter 4, he speaks of David, who came a good deal after uh, Abraham. Was David justified by works? Was salvation different for David than it was for Abraham or from us? No. The plan of God with respect to these men is exactly the same as it is for us. And that's because salvation is one and the same. And when you see that, you will see uh, that Abraham, David, and we ourselves are all saved, saved in exactly the same way. Or we could look in chapter 5 and see that the Apostle Paul speaks even more broadly than that. He goes all the way back to Adam and he speaks of Adam as the first head of humanity. And then he goes beyond Adam to Christ as the second head of humanity. Do you realize what Paul is doing? He is he is causing us once again to consider this vast expanse that covers the whole of history in which the plan of God in saving sinners is being carried out. It goes from Adam to Christ. And then we could say to Christ again as he comes again in his glory in his second coming. And if you haven't learned to think of salvation like that, then you're going to miss some very important truths, not just about salvation in general, but even about salvation as it applies to you. When you do this, you gain something very important, just as when you don't do it, you lose something very important. It becomes clear that God is doing something in saving sinners that involves the whole world. The whole of the cosmos, Paul says, and the elect in all ages. If we if we look at what Paul says in another verse, I, I keep going back to these verses. Let me do so again. Ephesians chapter one. As I've been saying, the great the great theme of that chapter is the plan of God. 
just as it is in Romans chapter 8. And he says this in verses 9 and 10. What he is considering, what he is explaining is the plan of God and the, and the vast expanse of that plan that fills all of history. Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth. Could you imagine a more comprehensive statement of the, than that? So often, I say again, we think of my own salvation, my own relationship to Christ. Well, Paul is saying, very good. But do you realize that what God is revealing to you in calling you to himself and in saving you is the grandness of the purpose that he purposed in Christ Jesus, even the summing up of all things under his lordship in the fullness of times. We could look at another place. Indeed, uh, on this theme, we could look at many places, but I'll just look at one more. Philippians chapter 2. The apostle says this. And really, he's looking at the goal. He's looking at the end. He says this. That the name, or, or I should begin really in verse 9. Philippians 2, 9. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth. And of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Well, it would be impossible to try to list all of the verses which say similar things. The plan of God. The purpose of God. Well, in a sense, Paul is saying it won't become clear until we get to the end. In fact, that's a point I'll make later on in the sermon. But even now it's been made clear to us. God has set before our eyes. And, and, and filled our ears with the knowledge of what God is doing and what he plans to do for all eternity. The great purpose of God is to glorify the Son and to glorify the saints in the Son. He is to appear as the firstborn among many brethren. That's what Paul tells us in verse 29. And if we want to understand the purpose of God, this is something I've said in prior sermons, we've got to understand God's purpose for the Son. And when you think of it like that, well, then you'll begin to grasp something of the greatness and the grandness of the purpose of God in saving sinners. And you will say, along with Paul and all the apostles, the real wonder to me is that I should have any part in it at all. You see, you don't claim any right to this salvation. You are amazed, rather, that God should ever have willed that you should have a part in it. But once you see it, once you begin to grasp the purpose, then you will become sure because you will realize that your salvation does not depend on yourself, nor did it ever. It always depended upon not man, but he who willed, he who calls, he who formed in his great heart from all eternity, this plan by which the elect would be saved in Christ. And Christ would appear on the last day as the firstborn among many brethren. Well, as I say, that's the way to be sure. That's the way to come to an assurance of our salvation. It's to be sure of his purpose. And then to consider my place in that purpose. So then, the great plan of God, which we've been looking at, is stated like this. Whom he foreknew, he also called, uh, predestined, whom he predestined, he also called, whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. That is, well, that is a plan which is stated in a very simple way, which spans eternity past to eternity future, from eternity unto eternity. It fills the vast expanse of all eternity. 
And you can never speak of the plan of God in a way which is any more limited than, than that. Again, it is a statement which is universal, not just from the standpoint of time, but from the standpoint of people. From the standpoint of people. This one way of salvation was conceived in the mind of God before there ever was a world. This was always the will of God for the elect. Everyone whom God has ever saved, going all the way back to Adam and Abraham after him and so many others, is one who was foreknown of God. For loved of God in eternity past before he ever came into this world. And having been foreknown of God, he was predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And having been predestined, he was called by God into fellowship with himself. And having been called, he was justified by faith alone. And having been justified, these he also glorified. Let me try for the remainder of this sermon... To substantiate this point from the history of the Bible. It is a truth which I would claim is asserted and substantiated on every page of the Bible. When Paul says what he does in these verses, he's summarizing the whole history of redemption. Let us begin with Adam. Now, Adam is an interesting case. Paul likes to speak of Adam. He does so in many places. He's already done so in this epistle. I've referred to that. The interesting interesting thing about Adam is that he resembles not us, but Christ. Adam was the head of humanity, the federal head. There's the technical language. He was placed under a covenant of works. He was created, unlike us, as one who was perfect, innocent, undefiled, sinless. Who does that sound like? That sounds like Jesus. He was one who resembled Jesus. He lived in the garden, the sanctuary of God. He, he was a priest who, we could say, ministered for however short the time was in the presence of God. And there was this possibility under the covenant of works that by his obedience, he might achieve eternal life, not only for himself, but for all of his posterity. In other words, it was possible for Adam that he might have been justified by works. By his obedience, not only for himself, but for his seed. That by his obedience, he would be counted by God as one who was righteous and thus entitled to eat from the tree of life and live forever. But that isn't what happened. Adam did not obey. Adam did not inherit eternal life by his obedience. He fell. He sinned. He was thus cast out of the garden and forbidden access to the tree of life. The two angels Uh, With the flaming swords placed in its way. You see instead of being entitled he was forbidden. Not only his right to the garden. But his right to the tree. Not only he but his wife. And soon his children. Not only were they cast out of the sanctuary of God. But they were now subject to death. And to the misery and the wages of sin. All the days of their life. Along with their children. That's what happened to Adam. Now here's the question. Was that an accident? You see, we've been considering the facts, the history, but look behind this into the plan of God and ask yourself, was God surprised by all of this? Was he disappointed? Was he frustrated? In other words, we could put it like this. Did he have a plan for Adam that Adam frustrated and overturned by his disobedience? And it being frustrated by Adam's disobedience, was God forced to form another plan? Well, here was plan A. 
I would save man through, Adam, through Adam's obedience. Well, Adam failed. I need to form another plan. Do you realize, and, and so I'll save man through a redeemer. Do you realize that's how it's often put today in America? It's called dispensationalism. There's plan A, there's plan B. In fact, there's a, there's a lot of letters in all those plans. There's God, God goes from one to the next, it seems. But what I want to know is this. Is what Paul says about us in Romans chapter 8. These whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ and so on. Is that true of Adam? Can we say of Adam that this is true? Or we could put it more generically. What was God's will for Adam formed in all eternity? And here is the plain truth that we have to see. And that is, although it is difficult to accept for many, and that is that God willed that Adam should fall. I'll say that again because it's a controversial statement. I don't know. Thankfully, I don't know how controversial it is here. I think we're well-schooled in this thought. But let me say it again. God willed that Adam should fall. Adam did not fall by accident. Still less did he fall in spite of God, as though Adam or the serpent had succeeded in frustrating the plan of God for Adam and for humanity. Adam fell. Because God did not will that mankind should be saved by Adam. God did not will that mankind, nor Adam himself, should be entitled to eat of the tree of life because Adam obeyed. Do you remember what Jesus says in Revelation? He says, those who overcome, those who have faith, those who persevere, I will give a right to to eat of the tree of life and live forevermore. God did not will. In eternity, that man should be entitled to this tree by Adam. Those whom he foreknew, those whom he foreloved, those whom he predestined, he predestined in Christ. He didn't predestine them unto conformity to Adam and his glory. He predestined them from all eternity to be conformed to the image of Christ. As God set his great love upon us from all eternity, it was always in Christ his son. Always. How necessary it is that we should see this. Go back to Ephesians 1 or listen on as I read this. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You see, before Adam ever entered this world, before there was a world, God chose us in him. Who is him? Christ, not Adam. God chose us. In Christ before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. You see, not by Adam. Not by ourselves. By Jesus Christ to himself. Adam fell to make room for a redeemer. For God had willed from all eternity that man should be saved by a redeemer. Even by the very son of God. And what I am saying is not only a statement for yourselves. I am saying that this is true of Adam. It's true of Adam himself. We are able to say that what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 was true also of Adam as well. That Adam was saved not by his obedience. Certainly we could see that in the case of any man. If If any man ever had the opportunity to do so, it was Adam. Yet he fell, he sinned, he died. He experienced God's wrath, God's judgment. And yet Adam was saved. How was he saved? Why was he saved? He was saved not because of anything in Adam. He was saved because he was foreknown. 
And as one who was foreknown and thus foreloved, he was predestined by God to be conformed to the image of God's son, which means that Adam experiences salvation in just the way we do. He's called. He was called. He was justified by faith alone. And so, too, he will be glorified along with us, standing on the last day as one who is like Jesus Christ. One whose body is conformed to the image of the Son of God in his resurrection. His salvation looks like ours. Did you ever think of that? And did you ever think of why that was? Do you see how much confusion ensues when we do not comprehend the plan of God? Go beyond Adam to Noah. Here the picture becomes bleak and you don't have to read very long to to get here. You go from chapter two to chapter six and you have a whole world history in essence. And we're tempted to read those early chapters in Genesis and conclude God regretted it all. He regretted his plan. He was sorry he made man. It even says so in Genesis. He regretted that he made him. He was sorry that he made him. The question is, what are we to make of those words? Well, look at what God does. He determines to drown the world in judgment. And so it would seem that God was ready to be done with mankind altogether. He, it would seem that he was ready, let me state it in terms of the point I'm making, that he was ready to abandon his plan that he had made and to form a new plan. That's how it seems. But look here, there is this one exception, and the one exception says everything. Noah and his family. What do we find? We find that God calls them to himself. And he saves Noah and his family by the very waters that judge the world. That's how Peter puts it. Now, how do we explain that? That Noah was saved and no one else was. Why this exception when God looked on mankind and saw such wickedness? Why did God spare this one man and his family? And there's only one explanation if you understand the the history and the story of the Bible. It wasn't Noah. Noah was a righteous man, although... He was also a sinner. The narrative makes that clear, too. The answer is the plan of God, the plan of God formed in all of it, in all eternity. And the whole history that's recorded in the Bible is to make that clear to us that God never abandons his course. He goes on with it. However wicked man becomes, however much it becomes necessary in God's eyes to punish man and to judge man. He never abandons his plan. It goes on. Now, that becomes clear, it seems to me, especially in the case of Noah. You have one single exception, and yet from him, from that single man, God renews his covenant, and the plan of salvation goes on. And it carries on and reaches even to us and even into all eternity. Noah was a man, let me say again, as I said of Adam, who was foreknown. He was foreloved. He was predestined along with us to be conformed to the image of Christ. He was part of this great plan that God had made. He was part and that and that he is executing. He is part of the all things that are working together for good. Through Adam or through Noah, we not only see his own salvation, but the salvation of many. Go beyond Noah to Abraham. Do we not notice the same things? We notice the call of Abram. We see God setting him apart. We see God justifying him. These things are in the narrative. These are things which stand out very clearly. 
We also see God indicating to Abraham that he will carry forward his great plan of salvation through him. In you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. It's amazing to think, again, God's stating his plan so clearly in the call of Abraham, and yet the Jews missed it. Is it possible that we're capable of the same error? That we would be called of God and yet miss the plan of God? That's the error of the Jews. Is it your error? Do you see how Abraham, along with the others, was foreknown and predestined? How he was called, how he was justified, how he will be glorified? Is it not clear in the case of Abraham that salvation is one and the same for all? Romans chapter 4. What about Jacob? How does one explain God's choice of him? Was he not the lesser man? Was Esau not nobler by nature? You read the narrative and you tell me. And yet, the wonder of that is that God was pleased to choose Jacob, not Esau. And what's the explanation? Well, the explanation, Paul tells us, as we'll see in Romans chapter 9, is that he loved Jacob. Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. This man I have foreknown and thus foreloved. Those words are, are synonymous. This other I have not. One of the things we could ask ourselves in light of Jacob and Esau, the reality is not why is one saved and not another. It's rather why is any man saved? And the answer is solely this man I have loved and this other man I have not. The answer is not found in man, it's found in God. Go beyond Jacob to Moses. What do we see again uh, in him? We see the call of Moses. And in calling Moses to himself, the plan of God was being carried through him. Go beyond him to the children of Israel. Have you ever asked this question as we asked of Jacob? Why them? Why did God choose this nation? Why did God tell Israel? As he told them in in Amos chapter 3 verse 2. You only have I known among the nations. In fact that's a very strong proof text for, for my definition of those whom he foreknew. It doesn't mean he knew things about them. No, it means he set his love upon them. I've distinguished you. I've made the difference myself. You only have I loved. The others I have rejected. I've hated. The answer, why there ever was in Israel, why they were set apart, wasn't anything that was found in them. God goes to great lengths to show them this. And the whole history of Israel makes this clear. But as we see this truth being found in Israel, we ask ourselves, and surely we're able to answer Is that not the same truth which we have in Romans? And do do we not see how consistently this truth is presented in Scripture? The choice is God's. It isn't man choosing God. That was never the case. One time in history, man was given the opportunity. Adam in the garden, and he rejected God. The choice was always God's. Always. It's not a matter of man, but of God. As Paul will later say, What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have uh, compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it's not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And and on and on he goes. I'm just anticipating the arguments in Romans chapter 9. Come at last to the New Testament. What do we find there? I think we find in the Gospels and in the Epistles the strongest confirmation of this truth that we found in the Old Testament. Look at how Jesus deals with sinful men. Look at how he reflects upon in his preaching his reason for coming into the world. It was this errand that he was sent on by the Father that he gladly and willingly uh, uh, chose to do. 
And do you see as he came into this world on this grand errand how he invites men to himself? He does so like this. Matthew chapter 11. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and those whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who, are la- who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so on, he says. He invites sinners to himself, having gloried in the fact That it isn't man who chooses God, it is God who chooses man. Why does anyone ever come? It's because the son was pleased to reveal the father to him. Look at what he says, or listen to what he says in another place. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the father who sent me. That all that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. Do you see that? The elect were already given to the son. His errand was to gather them, to call them to himself. And surely they would come for they were already chosen. They were already foreknown. They were already predestined. So surely when they are called, they will be justified. And having been justified, they will be glorified. Do you see that the plan of God cannot fail? Jesus did not come into this world Uh, To execute a chance. He came into this world to execute, execute the plan of God. Even as it was formed in all eternity. I doubt there is any truth. Which the apostles going beyond Jesus into the into the epistles. Any truth which the apostles gloried in more than this. More and more as I read Paul especially. But then Peter and John. I notice that this is the thing they 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 marveled at. We find it even in Peter's first sermon at Pentecost. He's glorying in the plan of God, not their choice of God, but God's choice of them. A choice they discover was made and formed in all eternity. And why do you suppose that was that this was their favorite doctrine of all? It was because they, like we, I hope, were conscious of their own unworthiness. They did not deserve to be counted among those who were loved of God. And yet they were. How do I account for that? That God should save a single one of us is a matter of pure wonder. Or at least it ought to be. It ought to amaze you. It ought to humble you utterly to the core. That's why I said in in an earlier sermon, any man who is proud because of predestination has not understood it. Not as the apostles did. Not as it's taught in the New Testament. I am what I am by the grace of God. It's a matter of pure marvel and wonder to me. I'm amazed. I don't understand it. How could God, the great God from all eternity, have set his love upon one like me, a worm like me? And yet, I'm able to say, I am what I am, not because of what I am, but in spite of what I am, purely by the grace of God, because of the great love with which he loved me, even me. He chose me, Paul said, even before I was born, Galatians chapter 1, verse 5. And so, as these men preached to others, these apostles, and as they wrote the New Testament, they were conscious of this. They were conscious of the plan of God, which made salvation possible, which made it inevitable. Both for themselves and of their hearers. Perhaps we could say their goal was to make them conscious of it. Not only to make make men know how they could be saved, but why. Of what God was doing, his plan in saving man. And my whole point 
is that this is something we, we can never lose sight of. We should never lose sight of this, for the apostles never lost sight of it. And any man who has ever taken the trouble to study the New Testament will become conscious of it. Any man who has ever been called of God and has regular dealings with God, I mean someone who walks with God, this is a man who is conscious of this. But go even beyond that. I have one final point, and that is look at the culmination of the great plan. These whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this surely is the great event to which the whole of Scripture, and especially the whole of the New Testament, looks forward. It is the great event which, well, in which we were saved. We were saved in hope. We are hoping for that which we do not presently see, but that which we long to see, and that which we one day will see when Jesus comes again in glory, surrounded by his angels and surrounded by his saints. And it's on that day that he will appear to be the firstborn among many brethren, surrounded by all of these people, let us say, and let us see, who are like him. They are made like him. They are glorified on that day. They are conformed to the image of the Son. They appear not only to be the elect, but his very brothers, those who are like him. That is the great event to which we look forward and in which we were saved in hope. And it's on that day, let us see, as we long for it, as we set our hope upon it, that the great plan of God and the purpose of God in saving man will become clear for all to see. And what will become clear to us above all else is how perfectly and how completely God has willed our salvation even from all eternity. And that is a will and a plan that he never abandoned, that he never gave up. It was something he set out to do, and so it was something he did. And that's the thing we'll glory in. We won't glory in man. We won't glory in ourselves. We won't glory in the law. There isn't anything we'll glory in but God himself, God's glory, the wonder of his glory as he revealed it in his son and now is revealed in us. It's to that that the Christian looks forward. It's the thing that the Christian soon will see. And what he'll see, I say again, is the plan of God. And it is as we consider that even now as we're suffering that we're able to say, I hope we're able to say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Oh, I realize I must suffer for a little bit, for that too is the will of God. But when I think of what God will do in me and what God will reveal in me along with his son, I realize, I consider, I take to heart. I'm emboldened to see that these things simply cannot compare. And so I go on in faith and in hope, the glory that shall be revealed in us. Amen. And let us come now to the table.